Thank you for listening to this teaching from Table Church in Des Moines, Iowa. We are in a series called Seven Questions Jesus Asked. Jesus understood that sometimes he could say more with a simple question than with a thousand other words. His questions are known for their ability to pierce through our intentions and get to the heart of the matter. In this series, we are exploring seven questions that he asked people 2,000 years ago, but are just as relevant for us today. And as always, please be sure to check us out at tablechurchdsm.org. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to Table Church. Uh, We just love you all so much, whether we know you or not, and we're just so glad we get to do this with you. So thanks for coming. Uh, Today, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 20. And if you brought your Bible with you, you can open there. If you don't have a Bible with you and you want to hold one in your hands right now, you can. We have some in the back. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand and one of the ushers will come in and give you one. And if you want to keep it, you can or you can just give it to us when you leave today and uh, we'll take it back. All right. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. And that chapter starts out with a parable of the workers in the vineyard. So as a refresher, that parable uh, explains that there's a vineyard, there's work to do, and at the beginning of the day, some people start working and then they keep opening it up to more workers to come in. They go find more people, go find more people, go find more people. And so finally, at the end of the day, everyone uh, who's worked for the day lines up in a row and they pay the people who've been there the least amount of time first. And when they pay them, Then they start going down the line, and and it turns out that everybody in that line gets the same amount of payment for the work they did that day, whether they were there for an hour or 12, right? And obviously, the, the parable is shocking to people. Like, why in the world would it be that way? But Jesus is explaining to this group of people coming to listen to him talk that this is how the kingdom of God works, that the last will be first and the first will be last, okay? And then um, we're going to be reading today, we're going to start in uh, verse 17 in Matthew 20. If you've gotten a chance to flip there, that's where we'll start. All right, so here's our passage for today. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the leaders of the law, the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and said, kneeling down, she asked a favor of him. And Jesus says, what is it you want? And she says, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. And he turns to James and John and he says, Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, They were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, like the parable of the workers in the kingdom of God, the last will be first and the first will be last. That's what Jesus is is trying to explain to them at any level that they can receive it. All right. Now, the series that we're in right now is called Seven Questions Jesus Asked, and we are doing just that. We're going through week by week and just looking at a question that Jesus asks in one of the Gospels. Okay, and this is our question for this week. It comes from verse 20, the mother of James and John. If you watch The Chosen, this is like big James and John, right? The big guy and his brother, okay? In verse 20, the mother of James and John has this request for Jesus, and he asks her, what is it you want, right? And she answers, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and at your left, in the kingdom, all right? So that's something she wants. It's something her sons want, right? We want, we want the best for our kids, right? Jesus, I want my sons to be in the right place. I want my sons in the kingdom of God that you're talking about. I want my sons to be close to Jesus forever. I want my sons at his right and his left. I want my sons to be secure in position and power, to have a good life. Jesus, put my sons in good places on either side of you, right next to you. A good position and access to power equals security, influence, and purpose. That is what I want for my sons. But position and power in the kingdom of God do not work the way the world does. And they are just beginning to begin to maybe get to the point where they can understand that. So look at how quickly these two worldviews are clashing and snapping back and forth in this passage. We had just heard that teaching from Jesus about the workers in the vineyards. The last will be first and the first will be last, right? And And then Jesus immediately goes from that in the text to explaining explicitly to his disciples what is gonna happen to him. Big spoiler, but everything that is about to happen to him. He spares no details. He says exactly what is about to happen. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Right? Parable of the workers in the vineyard. The last will be first, and the first will be last. And here's exactly what is going to happen to me, right? The person who deserves it least. This is what's going to happen to me as I follow the Father, all right? And now with that in the air, the text tells us the mother of James and John then asks for her sons to have a place at the right and left of Jesus. And James and John are ready to do it. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus says to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. They don't get it yet. They don't know. They don't know. Jesus knows. It has not yet been revealed to them what that could possibly mean, But this conversation reveals the heart of the conflict 
between worldly power and power in the kingdom. This passage says that when the other ten disciples heard about this conversation that Jesus is having with James and John, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Nobody understands it yet. Okay, In the world... Selfish ambition pushes us to the top. And in the kingdom, selfless ambition leads us to the bottom. This is a teaching the disciples cannot yet grasp, even when Jesus lays it out for them. Can you drink this cup? Now, actually, now that we're talking about this, all this talk about drinking has got me kind of thirsty. I'm going to go grab a drink, so just hold on. Okay, talk amongst yourselves. All right, so this is, for those who have the audio, they don't know, it's like an advertisement for Trader Joe's. Okay, but, all right, now in my house, we have a drink we love to drink, okay? Especially in the summertime when it's hot, we get one of these, go sit on the porch, it's called an Arnold Palmer. Who knows what an Arnold Palmer is? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Real simple. It's just iced tea and lemonade. That's it. That's all it is, all right, an Arnold Palmer, okay? And you can kind of picture this as, uh, as what James and John and their mother are asking for, okay? This really sweet, good drink. This cup they think that they are requesting, all right? You can kind of think of it like this. James and John, their mother, what they want more than anything is position and power, that sounds like a sweet combination, all right? Position and power. You know, they're picturing it just a position close to Jesus who clearly has all this power and incredible influence. They can see that he's good. They can see he has the words of everlasting life, right? They want a big cup of that, that position and power that gives them this ultimate security, all right? It tastes good. It's just right. I know just the amount that I want, right? Just perfect proportions. Okay, hold on. It's good. It's really good. Whew, position and power. Tastes good, right? Here's what the disciples don't know. It's what James and John don't know. The position and power that Jesus is talking about in the kingdom of God, if you want to share in that cup with him, okay, it's going to include more than these good things that we have in mind, okay? It's going to include... Uh, maybe some rejection, maybe some isolation, 
incredible loneliness. It's going to include uh, maybe some people twisting your words, taking what you said and twisting it around just right so it says something the opposite and using it against you. going to take a whole lot, a whole lot of repaying evil with good. Betrayal. Even your closest friends could betray you. This is my favorite hot sauce, by the way. It's very hard to get in Iowa, so it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. It's going to maybe include some bodily harm, maybe a horrible death for some people, right? This cup, that's the cup that Jesus is talking about, and they are not ready to see this cup. They don't know what they're asking for when they say they want to drink, right? I'm not going to drink this cup. (laughs) But I did need two bathroom breaks after the first service, so, you know, I drank. I I really drank that, you guys. So, I'm not going to drink that cup, all right? But that's the paradox of kingdom power, okay? This is not an easy cup to drink. This is not an easy cup to drink. And I can catch myself forgetting that at times. Years ago, long, long ago, I found an old Henry Nouwen book in a thrift store, and I bought it. Now, that just shocked me in the moment. It was very jarring to me, okay? That is not what I expected from a book called Creative Ministry, right? And, and the back cover did not help me out because it promised me that this was a book about how to be a fruitful minister, how to have ministry for many, many years that was fruitful and healthy and good for the kingdom, okay? A bit of false advertising, don't you think? Right? And now that passage is from John 21, book of John 21. So Jesus has died and he's risen again. It's after the resurrection. And he goes to find Simon Peter, who 
when everything was falling apart for Jesus, as Jesus was taken by authorities to go get beaten and humiliated and crucified, just like he had been describing what happened to him, Peter denies knowing Jesus three times to get away from that same danger, okay? Now, Peter had followed Jesus and performed miracles in the power and the authority given by Jesus, and he understood Jesus to be the Messiah. And yet, when Jesus lived through the humiliation and torture that would lead to his death on the cross, Peter abandoned him. This is the man who had once told Jesus, where else would it go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, in the moment, he turned away. And he's feeling horrible about this, right? And he's full of grief and regret. And, and Jesus comes and finds him on a beach. And through a conversation with Peter, he restores him. He reinstates him into ministry, all right? This is that conversation where Jesus says, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Take care of my sheep, right? So for all, for all three times that Peter had denied Jesus, Jesus now gives him an opportunity to, to answer that question, do you love me? And he can say yes. And Jesus says, now go, follow me, feed my lambs. Three times for the three denials. And he restores him into ministry, into cruciform ministry, okay? Kingdom, power, and authority are lived in the shape of a cross. And Peter is ready to know that now. So we're going to go back to this passage from John 21. In verse 18, it says, Very truly, I tell you, he's talking to Simon Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, as in mature, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate in advance the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. That's a cup. That's the cup. What is it that you want? That's the cup of a disciple. In the world, selfish ambition pushes us to the top. Okay? And in the kingdom, selfless ambition leads us to the bottom. Devotion to Jesus will at some point lead you where you do not want to go. It will. History and tradition tell us that Peter is eventually crucified by Emperor Nero, and at Peter's request, as they are going to crucify him, he asks to be crucified upside down because he does not believe he's worthy to die in the exact same way that Jesus did. Right? He drank the cup. Peter drank the cup. This is an exercise of power and authority in the way of Jesus. What it might do with you it makes no sense to the world. It's not at all how the world sees it. Jesus said the sons of Zebedee would indeed drink from that cup, and they do. They do. James is martyred. King Herod executes James in the same way as John the Baptist went. I'm softening, softening the details here. <laughs> Mixed company, right? And, and John 
suffers greatly in life, a lot of persecution, but he does end up living for a long time and ends his life exiled on an island alone. All right? They drank the cup. Devotion to Jesus did at some point lead them where they did not want to go. And as a preacher, it is tempting to try to soften this message to apply it to our lives in some other softer way, but I don't think that's responsible. All right? We would be foolish to think that what was required of the first followers of Jesus no longer applies to us. It would be tempting to act as the disciples did and not really catch the message, just sort of bounce off, right? That's not for me. Jesus, what are you talking about? Right? I can say when we seek the power and position of Jesus, these two things right here, when we seek those, but we do not agree to the terms of how power and position work in the kingdom of God, that is the source of much of the corruption that we do see in the church today. Right? Exercising power and position without cruciform submission to God is an abuse of holy authority. Do we seek to dominate or to serve? It is easy to see this in leaders, especially those who end up falling in public disgrace somehow. But don't use that as a deterrent to let it bounce off you, all right? To stay blind to your own sin. Every one of us probably does the same thing in some way, and to stay comfortable, we ignore the ways that we abuse the power and position that we have in Jesus. We find ways to do it. All right. It's a temptation we all need to face. Now, in another book, In the Selfless Way of Christ, Henry Nouwen says, the great paradox which Scripture reveals to us is that real and total freedom is only found through a downward mobility. The Word of God came down to us and lived among us as a slave, the divine way is indeed the downward way. When we come to know Jesus, we approach him with our questions and our expectations and our needs, and we come to Jesus as little children who need to learn that we are held by love, no matter what. Now, no matter how long you've uh, been a Christian, no matter how long you've been in the church, there has to be a point in your life when you come to Jesus only on that level to understand that you are held by love no matter what. That is how we begin. That good attachment, that holy attachment. All right. But we can't begin to follow Jesus until we are ready to obey him. All right. We come to Jesus, and, and that attachment forms rightly when we realize we are held by love and there is nothing, simply nothing to do other than be loved, to be in that love. And then the natural response that grows up out of that is obedience. We follow him. We do what he says. All right? Throughout Scripture, there is an expectation that those who love God do what he says out of devotion, not out of duty. Okay? That's why it has to go in that direction. We can't 
walk with Jesus and go our own way. And if we follow Jesus, we have to go where he leads. We go in the way of Jesus. Right? Now, on the surface, that can look very positive because, after all, the things that, that God asks of us in the Bible, many of them will help us have a pretty good life. It will help us make good commitments and stick to uh, the, the things that we say we're going to do them. Right? And it can help us with uh, making sure that we spend our money and save it and give it responsibly. And it can help us have really good relationships that have a lot of healing and health in them because we learn how to forgive people and, and embrace them no matter what the world would say we need to do to push them away. Okay, Hospitality, real hospitality to the stranger. And, and we can be the recipient of that where someone shows us hospitality and welcomes us in. Okay? We want all that good stuff. That's good stuff. Here's the problem. God achieves these good things in and through us with methods that are often entirely backwards from how the world works. So when we give our lives to Jesus, it does not take long before following him will mean going against the tide of the world, other people's expectations, your family, especially your own natural desires. It will happen. Jesus says if we want to gain life, we'll need to lose our life. And he says the path of freedom is to find the one thing in the world that we hold most dear and let it go into the hands of Jesus to make sure we are not clutching it too tightly. Jesus, where would we go, right? Where else would we go but you? You can have it all. The key to tapping into eternity here and now is to align ourselves with selfless ambition. Jesus asks us to obey God just as Jesus obeys the Father. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus was obedient to the Father even unto death. And if we are following Jesus closely, humility and sacrifice and obedience to even small things will become a part of our nature too. It will become easier and easier to the point that we don't even have to decide. We just know the way that God's heart is moving us and we go there. We will begin to do things, to love things, to create things that will baffle the world sometimes, but will reveal the kingdom of God to those who are ready to receive it. Henry Nouwen often explains that in the world, we people have learned, we have been enculturated to seek three things above all else, to be relevant, to be spectacular, and to be powerful, right? These are three temptations we all face. Jesus faced them too. And in other words, we want uh, to be very essential, right, to, to people and to things that are happening around us, all right? We want to be relevant. We want to be missed if we're gone, all right? We want people to think we really have something that nobody else can give quite like we can. Okay, we want to be relevant, right? And we want to be spectacular. We want to be incredibly good, at maybe many things, maybe just one thing, but we want to be really, really capable, all right, and make people go, wow, right? And we want to be powerful. We want to be the masters of our own universe, whether we like it or not. A lot of us struggle with this. We want to call the shots. We want to hold things together in the way we want them to be held together. In other words, we like to be in control. If we get help, we want to be in charge of when we ask for help, how we ask for help, and how we receive that help, and it better be what we ask for, and don't try to give me something you think I need, right? We want to be in control. Okay. 
We work hard in the world for those three things, right? Be relevant, spectacular, and powerful. But even when we get some measure of that success, we don't necessarily have peace. Worldly ambition is a moving target, right? We get some level of success. We reach here, and then the target moves over here, and we got to just go get this. That's how it works. Right? Selfish ambition cannot give you peace because you're trying to put those rewards in a place that only God can occupy. We strive and cannot ever get enough relevance, ability, or power because we are not God. And they are not God. If you look at the culture in America today, voices everywhere say that we need to move ourselves up, 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 right? What car do you have right now? Which one are you already thinking about getting next year? Right? Uh, get the house you want now, not 10 years from now when you can actually afford it. Just do it now, right? You buy a new iPhone, of course, you know that another one's going to come out, right? And that's just the way that all of culture works is like, get this and then be prepared because you're going to get another thing next, Right? Get, get, get. Do you have a degree? Get another one. Get a better one. Where are you at work right now? Are you planning on staying in that same position for 35 years? If you do, is there something wrong with you? Right? We're supposed to move up. That's how it works. All right? The world says its definition of success is security. Okay? Attaining power and appreciation is peace. Keep working for more of it. And Jesus says we're successful when we actively love our enemies, which is a thing we say all the time. And then when you're confronted with it, it's appalling. Like, really? Really them? Yes. Right? We're supposed to share our homes with strangers and forgive people who don't want our forgiveness and have not earned it. All right? That's the good life according to the kingdom of God, rooted in reliance and submission to the Father. Life in the kingdom of God operates downward. Success is obedience to God. Power is sacrifice for your neighbor. That's the cup. What is it you want? The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I have a simple challenge for every one of us today, including me, and it, becomes with, or it comes with a very simple question, and this is a question that has just been like churning inside of me for weeks and weeks, long before I put this message together. Just as I live my own life and as I live life with so many of you, this question has just been inside of me, it's just like moving me around, okay? Are you crippled by self-sufficiency? For many of us in this room, we are pretty capable people. We're capable. We have a good measure of what the world would call success. But in all that capability, are we crippled by our own sense of self-sufficiency? Are we crippled by it? How would you know if you are? Well, maybe do you find it easy to ask for help? Is it easy for you to ask for help when you realize you need it, not when it's way too late? Okay. 
And do you receive help well when it is given, or do you resist and feel like a burden? Or do you feel humiliated or judged by people that might come up to you and say, can I pray for you? I feel like I just feel this incredible burden that life is tough right now in a lot of ways, and you're handling it pretty well, but can I just pray for you? Let's just cut through all that. Do you need help? Right? Or do you feel offended that they would ask? Right? Are you crippled by self-sufficiency? Or do you go, yes, please, pray for me twice? Right? Do you understand what your soul needs? Are you pretty good at talking about uh, like what you're doing in therapy or with your counselor right now? Are you pretty good at talking about your needs and your relationships and how things can work and self-care and all of that stuff? Are you pretty good at figuring that all out for you? Except that as you follow Jesus and try to get healthier and healthier as a person, over the last few years, how many times can you name that you were in a season where all you did was just give and give and give and give to serve people where no one else was going to see it, and that person can't give you anything back? You know, are you, are you super obsessed with your own health, but how often do you just pour yourself out to other people on their behalf, knowing no one will see it, and you won't get any praise, and they can't ever help you back? How often does that happen? Okay. Because surely there are people around us who need it. Right? What is it that you want? What do you want? Can you honestly name a moment in the last week, in the last seven days, when your soul was deeply fed by God? Where you had a need that you realized was there, and you knew exactly where to go to get help, and you got that help, and it worked. Maybe the whole problem isn't fixed, but you are fed by God. Can you name a time in recent history that that happened? Okay. If you can, you are probably moving in the right direction, right? This isn't all about 100% performance like the world would tell us, right? It's about the direction that we're going. Okay. And if you can name some times that that has happened, you're probably going in the right direction with your relationship with God, with dependence on him. Are you familiar with reaching out for help, or is it more common to simply meet your needs in your own way? Maybe with some God thrown in, but the way you want it. Right? Dallas Willard said, you are a soul made by God, made for God, and made to need God, which means you were not made to be self-sufficient. It's not how we're wired. If you don't have muscle memory for this kind of reliance on God, then you might be living out of your own power and authority more than you think. If somebody asks you for help on behalf of a neighbor who really needs it, and you say, I've got too much going on today, I can't do it, right? If you say, oh, I got all this and I, I don't want my own stuff to get sacrificed, right? That wouldn't be right. Sometimes that's true. But how often are we so reliant on how we think the day has to go that we miss an opportunity to receive fuel from the Lord and resources from the Lord to pour out into someone else's life because we're like, well, I've had it all planned and this is how my day is going to go. I can't be interrupted, right? It's not always the case, but sometimes it might be that you are missing an opportunity to rely on the Lord. It's a holy appointment, right? A mature faith is selfless, ambition, and childlike reliance. 
Okay. We hear a message about denying ourselves and submitting in obedience to Christ, and it can often feel easy uh, to feel like you're being bludgeoned, right? And there's two ways the enemy can kind of twist this. It can either be like, you're not doing enough, right? You're not doing it right, right? That's how it can be, right? We can start to feel like, you need to do more to deny yourself and do it better, right? Or we can, we can start to feel like, okay, I, uh, I don't really know if I know God at all, right? <laughs> like, maybe I don't understand any of this. Don't worry about it, all right? It's just, if you, if you are a person who wants to, want to rely on God, that's good. That's good. That's the direction to go. Galatians 5, 6. Oh, I'm going to skip. I skipped a, a point here. We become Christ-like not by sacrificing enough for God, but being loved by God, okay? So the remedy to legalism is love, right? Not just knowing that God loves me, but like being loved by God as the goal. Like, we only can come as a child who is held by love and is loved, and there's no other result other than sitting with God and being held in love. That's where the attachment starts. Okay. And then, when we've really experienced that, we can be loved into obedience. All right. So Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You've got to be held by love first so that your obedience can come up out of that love because I have so much certainty about the power of the presence of God, his deep, deep abiding love and presence in my life that my position is so secure in the arms of God that I can do the things God asks of me without fear because I already understand. I live constantly embraced, firmly positioned in the arms of God, full of the power that comes from God because the love is the place, the birthplace where all of that other obedience, the things we do in the world comes from. Okay? We are loved into obedience. You don't have to be enough. Just sit and know you're loved and let that well it up out of your soul, okay? Learn to trust him by sitting with him and seeing how he acts. John Ortberg says our soul begins to grow in God when we acknowledge our basic neediness. All right, our basic neediness. Neediness is a prerequisite to the growth of your soul, understanding you are needy, and then abandoning your choice and control over how the need gets met. If God says, this is what I need, I will do it. That's what it is, right? The whole point of this message today is to understand it is necessary, required, essential that we learn to deny ourselves and embrace power and position in the way of Jesus know that you are held by the love of God. That's your position, right? And that you receive power by being loved as a child who can do nothing for yourself. And then up out of that, incredible things can happen in the world, right? Embrace your life of faith with Jesus. Not to do more, not to be more, but to be loved so that your soul can get what it has always been striving for in the first place. That's what it's about, all right?
Now, would you guys stand with me? We're going to sing one last song. And as we do, I just want to pray over all of us here, including myself, as we move to the end of the service here. This is going to be a short and sweet prayer, but a powerful one. All right. Jesus, King of the world, King of the universe, King of our hearts, if we allow him to be, Jesus, would you break any stronghold of self-reliance, any stronghold of control that cripples us, keeps us from walking and running with you? Jesus, would you break any stronghold that prevents us from experiencing the fullness and the freedom and the power and the love of a relationship with you that holds us as a little child and sends us out sheep among wolves with power and authority in the name of Jesus. Jesus, would you break any stronghold in the room, in any of our hearts, who need it, who are ready, break down those strongholds, Jesus, and in their place, put yourself, speak a new word, Give a new instruction that we can hear that can take root maybe for the first time. Jesus, teach us a new way to be loved and to love. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.